You're listening to the Monday Christian Podcast, the program that helps you put into action the truth of God's Word that you hear on Sunday to your everyday life on Monday. And now, here is your host, Ezra Beyer. Well, hey there. Welcome to the Monday Christian Podcast once again. Flying solo again this week because Dave got to his office and found out that, I guess, apparently it's under construction. So that caused some difficulties, and so I'll be uh, doing the interview myself today. Just wanted to make a note, if you haven't already, some of you just listened to this podcast, maybe it's on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, uh, go over to themondaychristian.com, and you can check out different things. So Elliot Huff, he is doing uh, various, what's called uh, TMC stories. So he's featuring different people who are putting their faith into action throughout the, the week. Last uh, last time, he did a police officer in Florida and just how this police officer is putting his faith into action in his community and in his job. He'll be featuring actually a story from one of my friends in Albania in the next episode of this. And then also, in addition to the videos that we do, we also have a lot of uh, fascinating writers. So Johnson Chu, my friend from Toronto, great writer, Tina Patamber, Jeremy Howard, uh, Robert Black, who's a new contributor now. Um, and, and we just have various voices um, that are just sharing about how God is impacting their life. And, and I think one of the things I'm trying to do is grow TMC and add it to, to its list of contributors. And so if you're someone that you're passionate about kind of putting your faith into action, you're passionate about media in some ways, but maybe you don't have a good platform to work with and um, you just, you want to get your message out, but you don't want to go through all the hassle of creating a website and all that kind of stuff. Hey, reach out to me, Ezra at the mondaychristian.com. Maybe we can partner up and, and do some cool things. But anyways, I want to get right into our interview or my interview. I keep talking as an R like uh, David's here, but uh, old habits are hard to break. Uh, Alan Fadling, he's the president and founder of Unhurried Living. So that must mean I need to read this a little bit slower, I guess. <laughs> but anyways, he, he lives in Orange County, California. He speaks and consults internationally with organizations such as Saddleback Church, uh, where Rick Warren used to be until he just retired, uh, InterVarsity Christian Fellowship, Crew, Halftime Institute, and so forth. He's the author of Unhurried Living. That was a big book. It was 2014 Christianity Today Book Award of merit winner. So that was a big one. Um, and then from that, he's really built uh, on that whole idea of unhurried living. And he's built a 365 day daily devotional. It's called a year of slowing down. We'll get into all that, but I just encourage you that if you're looking for a daily devotional, a lot of times I've used different ones, whether it's Oswald Chambers, my utmost first highest, fantastic resource, uh, and different ones I've used throughout uh, out the years. This is a great one. This is a great one because it forces you to slow down and really take inventory of your soul. And I think uh, that's exactly what at least Christians in uh, North America need these days. So anyways, let's go ahead and get into this interview that I had with Alan Fadling. Well, my guest on the podcast today is Alan Fadling, and he's the author of On Hurry Living and his latest book, a year of slowing down daily devotions for unhurried living. So, Alan, thank you for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate your invitation. I say us, but my co-host left us out today, so it's oh. me. I'm going to have to have to refer not to my mouse in my pocket today. 
<laughs> it's not an us. Well, the you and I are the us, I guess, this time. <laughs> well, Alan, whereabouts are you located? I live here in Orange County, California. Yeah. How long have you been? Well, let's just back up. Um, how did you first come to faith in Christ? Mm -hmm. What did your spiritual journey look like that got you to this point today? Yeah, I, I grew up in a not particularly religious home. Um, uh, so in my senior year of high school, um, my boss at a car wash was a vibrant follower of Jesus. And uh, his life impressed me. And one night he invited me to a concert. And those were the days when you walk forward at the end of a concert to pray a prayer with somebody up front. I did that September of 78, and it's been a wonderful journey since. It's fascinating. Okay, this is interesting because before, so I live just outside Boise, Idaho. Oh. I moved from Toronto, Canada. That's where I'm, so I'm Canadian. I've lived about 19 years in Canada. Um, before moving out here, though, I could, I could probably count on one hand the number of Californians that I knew. Oh, now I know a bunch. <laughs> I was just in <laughs> LA a few days ago. Um, and, and it seems like it, it's interesting. There, there's like a whole wave where how many people that I've brought on from California have this kind of a, a radical story of they went to an event or something like this, heard a very mm -hmm. clear presentation of the gospel, gave their life to Christ. I, again, this is totally a side topic, but do you see that happening these days as much? Um, what's been the shift in your area? Yeah, I, I, there are still a few, like the Harvest Crusade um, is a big event that still happens, but it feels more like a throwback um, right. than it does a, uh, a current event. I think more people are coming to faith in far more relational, conversational ways. Um, yeah, some of them perhaps in the gathering of the church and Maybe some churches still have a kind of invitational moment toward the close uh, for folks. But I think a lot of times it's far more relational, you know, at least here in California. And it could be the same elsewhere. Um, that sort of big box gathering, even for an evangelistic experience, has been a pretty big tradition. We've got a mm. number of larger churches for whom that was a very important sort of value and practice. And so. At least in my generation, there were quite a few who would have gone to a Billy Graham crusade when right. he came through or some of the other larger events. It's interesting because I'm working on a book, right, personal book right now for relate on, on the topic of relationships hmm. and obviously a broad topic. But I think of, you know, the relational evangelism, if you will, you know, and but then I think I wonder sometimes of my generation, if we miss sometimes the straightforward approach that it, it again, some of the, it, sometimes people will come on and they'll share their story of how they came to faith in Christ. And it might be maybe their girlfriend, you know, they were out on a date and she said, hmm. okay, here are the four spiritual laws, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. It's like, what is happening? But that's how they came to faith in Christ. And, and I, I sometimes wonder if my generation, if, if we're um, missing something there. So anyway, it's just a fascinating Sidebar. Yeah, that is interesting. Who were the biggest spiritual influences in your life, especially early on? Yeah, so um, here's where really the relationality becomes important. So the the gentleman who uh, was my boss, like I said, at the Magic Tunnel Car Wash in the 1970s, that's when that song was big, even it was kind of <laughs> hilarious, but uh, he was a relational influence. And then later there was a gentleman who was my youth pastor, also became kind of my first mentor in ministry in my young 20s. Uh, but maybe most, my most important mentors were a group of men who started a, a little nonprofit called the Leadership Institute. 
And they were the ones who introduced me to spiritual formation practiced. I had been a reader of books like Richard Foster's Celebration of Discipline or Dallas Willard's Spirit of the Disciplines. I was reading them, but I wasn't living them. Mm. Uh, my way of doing ministry was still pretty much frantic calendar filling uh, and being as busy as possible as the model of healthy, productive ministry. And so they really sort of introduced me to what I now call a more unhurried rhythm of living and of uh, leading. And so um, they, uh, two of those four men who launched that nonprofit have passed since then, uh, but uh, they, they were mentors for decades. Did you know Dallas Willard personally? Yes, a little bit. I know his family more now, um, his wife and daughter who runs the ministry. They're also here, you know, in Southern California. Um, I more I more so crossed paths with Dallas uh, over the years uh, here, either at uh, events or we invited him to come lead in a pastor gathering uh, for a number of days and so got a chance to interact with him then. So not best buddies, but acquaintances. Right. He's a fascinating guy because, well, he's had a, a profound influence on my life. I didn't obviously mm. didn't, didn't know him personally, but um, and but how many people that I've brought on the podcast, they'll you can see it in their writing, right? Where he shows up. I think yeah. I've, um, I haven't we haven't brought him on yet, but John Mark Comer, um, sure, very you know John Ortberg, you know, and you have this long list, and then others that may, might not be as well known. Um, he he kind of has his fingerprints on a lot of uh, a, a lot of individuals, which I think is just fascinating um yeah what, what was the biggest takeaway that you took from listening to him speak i guess because people that are unfamiliar if you start i started reading his book i think when i was 22 and i gave mm. up and put it down oh, <laughs> so, sure this is it's too confusing pretty, uh, it demands a bit of you doesn't it? yeah yeah <laughs> he's, he's a philosopher he's a profoundly deep thinker he's very crisp and precise in the ways that he uses words he is not sloppy in that regard. Uh, I, I, what I would say is, uh, you know, he was always very deliberate when he spoke as well. He, uh, he spoke slowly. He was not uh, trying to whip the audience into a, you know, popular frenzy or anything. But I would say the thing that most impacted me, uh, though what he said was really important, it was his manner. Mm. It was who he was, his capacity to be present, um, which is a lost art today. It's one of the costs of our hurried orientation. Very few of us are actually where we are. Yeah. And he was the sort of person who was completely, at least my experience of him, was completely present where he was. If he was talking to you, he was giving you his attention. He wasn't mm. also thinking about the next person in the line or the thing he had to do in a minute up on stage. He had the capacity to be present. And I, I found that remarkable and I found it something to aspire to. Man, that's that's so great because I thought about a lot of that lately. How many times you're talking to someone, right? And you're talking to them, and then they say, "Okay, j just hold this thought, right, right, <laughs> right." And then they'll look at their phone, or just it, it's something, or or maybe someone walk behind you, or something like that. And it, it's like, but there is something about about. Um, look at someone in the eye and actually just giving them your undivided attention. I mean, we got three young kids. Oh boy, yeah. I think about this often with them, right? That Absolutely. that Absolutely. Um because they What know. better gift could you give your children, right? Than yeah. your absolutely full attention as opposed to 30% of it 
while the other 70% of your attention is already thinking about worrying about something or planning on something or mm. assessing the next responsibility you have. Uh, one yeah. of the things I, on this whole unhurried living, you know, you'll often hear people say, oh, I wish I had more time. Well, I should wish I had more hours in the day, you know, or whatever it is. And what I always want to say is maybe the reason you feel that way is you are living so little of your time mm. already. You're, you're living 20 or 30% of your moments instead of 80 or 90% of your moments. You're, you're failing to be present. You're letting yourself be distracted. You're studying distraction in some cases, and you just aren't living into the moments God's already given you. You might not feel as time crunched if you learned how to be more present. The low-hanging fruit here, I guess, is we could talk about technology, and we've talked about that ad nauseum, yeah. right, on, on this podcast about, you know, what our phones and devices are doing to us. Is it just that, or is there something deeper going on when you look back over the last 10, 15, 20 years that is increasing our sense of hurried living? Well, the devices aren't helping. You know, I, I think of them as training devices. We think we're using them, but they are using us. And um, the way we use them is training us in distraction. We don't know how to give our attention for very long without picking up that little block of, you know, metal and glass that sits in our pocket or our purse. Um, but also, I think there's a, a bigger issue. I don't know that it's um, worse now or stronger now, but it's just that it's the issue of identity. Mm. Um, if I believe I am what I do, then to improve my sense of identity, I need to do more. If I think I am what I have or, or what I acquire, then I need to get more. Hmm. And if I am what people say about me, the, these three are the, are the trio of identities that Henry Nouwen talked about uh, as being common cultural identities. If I am what people say about me, well, then I got to get more people excited about me. All of those are identity treadmills. You know, it doesn't matter if you set them at two miles an hour and you stroll, or you set them at six miles an hour and you're running, you're going nowhere. And that all of those are a recipe for hurry. If I think going out into my work is where I'll establish my identity or prove myself, you know, I will never do it. Mm. I will never have enough. But if I think that I already have an identity, if I trust that I already have a God-given identity that I then go out and express in what I do, I can go out with abundance. Mm. I bring something to my work instead of trying to get something from my work. It's an immense difference between those. When you look back at Christian authors, early 20th century, and going back, you know, several centuries, how did they write, how did they communicate differently than, I guess, authors of today on this subject? What can we learn from people of the past on this? Well, it is interesting. Uh, I have some quotes, you know, from a hundred years ago, and they're talking about the awful problem of hurry and all yeah. of those horse drawn carriages and, oh my goodness, the train and the newspaper. Oh, the newspaper. And, you know, you think, oh gosh, if they, if they could look a hundred <laughs> years later, they would have no idea how to navigate what we are now faced with. But again, I think that hurry is not just a modern problem. It's a human problem. And so you do see this sort of language about um, the problem of hurry. It might help 
to clarify, one of the things Dallas, I had heard him say before that there's a difference between busy and hurried. Busy, that's your calendar. Hurried, that's your soul. Centuries going back, men and women who wrote um, important works talked about the problem of hurry in our souls. You know, sometimes it looks like anxiety. Sometimes it looks like uh, a drivenness towards some form of productivity. We, again, because we think we are what we do, uh, or or some starvation for the recognition of others. All of these are elements or facets of soul hurry that maybe modern technology is amplifying, but it's amplifying something that's already been there. I think of Daniel. Was it Daniel M? Brought him on. Um... He wrote a book called, well, I think it's, I think it's this title, We Are or We Are What We Do and uh, Six Other Lies, right, that we believe about work or something like that. Yeah. Um, is that a recent thing that's happened that we link that sense of – I say that because I was listening to a podcast the other day, just yesterday, and it talked about how, how much that's changed when they've pulled young adults and even parents with kids – that that whole idea of we want to find meaning and value in our work has skyrocketed. That that is that is one of the primary things that people care about. Um, why why, is, why have we seen that evolution? Yeah, there are probably a, a number of reasons for that. I certainly think one of them is we are aware of more people than we've ever been aware of before. So the whole comparison dynamic. You're not just comparing yourself with somebody across the dirt road in your little town. Yeah. Now you're comparing yourself with the planet. That's all. Just yeah. every single person who floats by your feed. Well, and the, the elite of the planet, because as your feed yeah. is set up, right, you you naturally get those primary influencers that pop up in your feed. And the best scenes from their life that's being yeah. curated. Right. So if you don't think very far, you, you imagine that the bar is just incredibly high, but but it's still all built on the shaky foundation that I am what I do and I am what people think about me and I am what I have. And the, the great freeing dynamic is to realize I go into my relationships, I go into my activities, I go into my life with a deeply rooted foundation identity that I can be confident about. I'm, I am beloved, I am treasured. Uh, I don't have a, I can't make a better name for myself than the name I've already been given by God. Then I go out into a world that is comparing itself with each other. And I'm not, I don't have to be hooked into it hmm. because I realize a lot of all that stuff is just morning mist that burns off by, you know, 10 in the morning. It's, uh, it's just not substantial. And so that, that's, that's part of what I think about that. This morning, I was thinking, even like last night, I didn't sleep very well. A little bit of sickness going around in our house. And so, oh. you know, you just, you start to feel that. And then you feel the pressures of work and everything. And so I was going through um, your latest book, A Year of Slowing Down. Hmm. And I came to one of the devotionals where you talked about you went to a retreat mm -hmm. and how when you went to the retreat, then uh, one of the gentlemen asked you, um, what was the question again? Basically, uh, what do Might you want? Might have been want? as simple as, what do you want? Yeah. Yep. Right. So I, I, I didn't take a little sheet of paper. I opened my another tab on my iPad mm -hmm. and just started, I made a list of about 30 things. Interesting, yeah. And what well, was fascinating because the first one, 
it was something I've been praying about, you know, um, more of a physical need. And then the next one, kind of a little bit more in that ballpark. Uh, The second and third got a little bit more relational. And then as I got thinking about it, then I was like, ah, I just, I want to, I want to know God, that God is working in my life. Mm. And the longer I went, the more um, pointed, I guess, my thoughts became. How did the exercise impact you when, when you did it? Maybe similarly to your description of, of trying that on uh, yourself. Um, for me, and I think for many of us, if you just point blank ask somebody, what do you want? <laughs> they think, I don't know. Uh, yeah. And then they'll rattle off maybe three or four top of the mind things. I almost imagine our desires are kind of like a pile of something. And the most important ones or the most God-given ones are down underneath the pile a bit. And there's kind of you know, whims and feel like it's and stuff piled on top of that. The thing about an exercise like this is you just start, you know, throwing things down. I mean, literally, I, I just, I, when I did this exercise, I was at a retreat center in Massachusetts and uh, I just started writing in my journal things I wanted. And some of them I could solve with 10 minutes and $5 and I'd have been, I was done. I was, you know, they're just little whims, little something. But the longer I did it, what I realized was I was tapping into my God-given heart. Uh, I was tapping into unique ways God's made me that he hasn't, he hasn't reproduced anywhere else. You know, I think Mm. each one of us is a unique person. Um, We express some unique facet of the heart of God. I think it takes all of us to express the image of God as fully as it could be uh, expressed. And so I think part of it is we begin to realize who we are and what perhaps God's calling us to. Uh, and so, you know, one of the great challenges is discerning all the desires that swim around inside of us. You know, which of them come from our deepest, truest God-given heart? Which of them have been imported from an advertisement? You know, which of them sort of have been culturally conditioned? Uh, we don't always do a very good job of discerning them. We, uh, Gosh, in some cases these days, it feels as though if I want it or feel like it, I must have it because that's my identity. Mm. There's very little sorting that happens among at least some of us. And is it, oh, go ahead. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's all right. Is it Psalm 37? I, I think it says, delight yourself in God and he'll give you the desires of your heart. How do you take that verse? Because I've heard Christians kind of take that different ways. Yeah. Well, certainly some have sort of taken it as a blank check, you know, um, sort of promise I think it's just describing reality. And that is, if you delight in God, if you, if you realize how beautiful God is, how glorious God is, how joyful God is, what a delight God is to be with, mm. then of course you're going to have the desires of your heart because it turns out that's exactly what God wants too. Yeah. And you'll find yourself aligned with the beauty of reality, the beauty of kingdom reality. And some people hear that verse and they imagine, you know, if I do a lot of good religious things and, and engage in lots of spiritual practices, you know, my garage will be full and my closet will be full and my wallet will be full. Mm. And I don't think that's nearly as satisfying <laughs> as it sounds to some ears. So that's that's how I hear that. I, I hear I hear the psalmist inviting us to align ourselves re- with reality. When I go back and I read, especially psalms that David's wrote and just his his passion, his enjoyment of God, 
And, you know, I think Christians are quick to talk about, oh, yeah, I delight in God, I love God, and they'll talk very, very candidly about that. But when it comes right down to it, when you say, is God your closest friend? I'll just be flat out honest. I mean, that is sometimes a difficult mm-hmm. question for me to answer. It, how how close is God to me? Because I think that means mean different things, not just the, the warm fuzzies, but th- there's that intimacy that that we discover over time with God. Yeah. Um, and sometimes I think Christians kind of look at this. I think of my wife when she was, uh, I think she was in her sophomore year of high school. You know, one, the coach came up to her and, you know, said something about lying, right? You know, which one of you is lying? And my wife said, well, I don't lie, right? And he said, he just laughed and he said, well, everyone lies, right? And <laughs> and the idea that someone like my wife generally does not lie is kind of like, what are you talking about? And I think sometimes when you talk about having a deep relationship with God, people look at that and they're used to using that language, but when it comes right down to it, it just feels so foreign. So what do you, what do you say to someone that's listening and they want to have that close, you know, they maybe even use that language. It's not a religion, it's a relationship kind of thing, right? Yeah. But, but they don't have that. Yeah. Well, the one thing I would say is it is a great thing to want and uh, to aspire to live our lives more deeply rooted, more at home in the presence of God is a beautiful thing to want. But it is easy to um, use language uh, to be close to God with our lips. Um, but not all that close to them in our hearts. And that language doesn't have to be about rebellious people. It can just be a description of what happens sometimes. We're in a Mm. uh, religious culture where this is the lingo. This is how we talk. This is how we describe our life with God. But you can usually tell the depth of someone's intimacy with God just in very simple ways. You know, what does their time look like? How do they spend their time? Uh, to what degree is God in heart and mind? Just in the to, to use the theme of your podcast on Monday, mm-hmm. and not just on Sunday. Uh, on Tuesday afternoon, when when you're kind of tired from your workday, is that a place of communion with God, or has God uh, have I become a kind of functional atheist? You know, yeah. in, through whole chunks of my day, and. When, you know, Brother Lawrence, that uh, Carmelite monk, French monk, said, uh, talked about the practice of the presence of God, it is something you practice. Hmm. It's something you train for. It, you don't just wish it. You don't just p- declare it or manifest it into the air. Uh, you practice. You practice the presence. Just like, you know, my wife and I will celebrate our let's see, our 38th wedding anniversary here in a few months, we have practiced one another's presence just very practically. We have spent more hours together than I have spent with any other human being on the planet. The only other person I've spent more time with, I think, is probably God. But that is a practice. It is, it is, it is you know, as Dallas Willard said, I'm, I'm cultivating an interactive relationship with God. I'm not talking about God. I'm talking with God. I'm in communion with God. Did that come naturally? Well, when did that start to click? Well, I, I would say naturally, no, I don't think so. Um, but I was introduced to faith in Christ by someone for whom this was their way of living the Christian life. That they had a, they, they had a sense of the practicing of God's presence. You sensed God mm-hmm. with them and in them and through them 
just in their everyday, his everyday kind of experiences. So that was my vision of the Christian life. I, I didn't have a vision of the Christian life that was mostly shaped by growing up in a church. M many people have that, and that can be a, an immense gift. That wasn't my experience. Mine was more um, uh, an experience of somebody for whom faith was a deep rea reality. And so sort of naturally, as a brand new Christian, I, would, I remember I was thinking the other day, I wasn't more than one year in this life with, with Christ. And I would uh, drive my 1972 Pinto <laughs> up into the Sierra Nevada mountains and camp for a day or two with God. As though it's just the most normal thing to do. Just go and enjoy this beautiful forest and just talk with God about what was going on in my mind and try to listen for God's voice and read scripture and study scripture. It just seemed like a very natural thing. And so that has that sort of shaped the trajectory of my own experience with God over the last 40 some years. When you talk to people in their relationship with God is kind of grown cold and they live at a frantic pace of life. How do you help them slow down? What are healthy rhythms that you help them establish? Yeah. Well, it's interesting, maybe referring back to a little bit, a little bit ago in our conversation, I, I will usually start not with disciplines or practices, but I will actually start with desire. And I'll just say, what would you like your life with God to be like? You know, when you dream about your communion with God, your fellowship with God, what, what do you imagine that could be like? Because I think you need a vision for that. Otherwise, practices just practiced without an intention, without a vision underneath them, uh, have a way of growing cold on their own. You know, you forget why you're doing this practice. Well, and just to tap into that for a second, I was listening to something I think Carrie Newhoff and Tim Keller were doing mm. a couple months ago. And Tim Keller talked about how he would speak very differently in New York City today than he would before. And that was mm. one of the things he mentioned is, is that it's, sometimes we're used to leading with apologetics or reasons for God and things like that, right? Mm -hmm. But people have to want it to be true first. Mm. And if there's not the want... Yeah. They don't really care if it's true. That's exactly right. So you have to decide, do you, do you actually want to draw close to God? Now, if you're just going to answer, well, of course I do. That may not yet be an answer. Uh, that may just be the answer of I'm supposed to. Uh, or the answer of everyone else seems to, I guess I should too. So should and ought to and need to and have to, those are very thin reasons for doing something long-term, but do you want to be near to God? Have you tasted and seen that the Lord is good? Why not take some more tastes? Um, what would it look like and what practices might help you open up space to notice God in your life and be responsive to God in your hmm. life? You know, sometimes again, the, the practice becomes the focus and then it, it, then it doesn't make sense. It doesn't do what it was meant to do. Yeah, yeah. Well, it almost just becomes a basic form of meditation, self-help, kind of, kind of it becomes almost that. Not that it's not helpful, but it just, it loses what, what it could be. Yeah. You know, one of the thoughts I was, you know, as you're sharing here, we had Janice McWilliams, um, a therapist, on last mm. week. And she said something I thought was interesting that, that in, she wrote a book on restoring our souls and, you know, how to, how to restore that. And a little bit along the same vein. But one of the things she mentioned is that sometimes 
people will come to her and they'll say, okay, I just need to do some self-care and mm. kind of pull back. And maybe they quit all their activities, right? They quit mm. volunteering here. They quit going here. And then pretty soon they're kind of feeling isolated, frustrated, and they did it in the name of self-care, but then they kind of feel, ugh. Yeah. And sometimes when I hear, it's a tension here, I guess. Sometimes when I hear people, of, especially my age, talking about self-care and everything and, and you know, living a, you know, a good, strong personal walk with God, um, sometimes it, it feels like they want to you know, do that at the expense of maybe um, sometimes hard work. Uh, sometimes mm. they just, you know, they're very quick sometimes to give up on things when maybe they should, you know, push through. And so how, how do you, how do you walk that tightrope of, okay, I need to buckle down and do this. And I'm actually, as opposed to I'm maxing out my capacity of who I am in Christ here. Yeah. Uh, that's a good question. I, um, a few thoughts come to mind. One, I always think it's probably a good idea to ask, which self am I trying to care for? Um, you know, Thomas Merton was one who popularized the language of true self and false self. It's not original with him, but he popularized it in some of his writings. But there can be a way that self-care is actually in an odd way taking care of the, the false self instead of taking care of the true self. Uh, so that I think is an important question. I tend to prefer the language of soul care to self-care. It, it presses the question, I think, of my soul being that, you know, unifying reality of the whole of my being, uh, that which organizes all the parts of who I am into a person. That's something to care for. And the other thing would be, yes, solitude is important, but solitude isn't isolation. It's alone with God, let's say. Or, you know, it's it's alone with others. It's close interaction. So the relationality is still important. I may need to disconnect from unhelpful relationships or draining relationships. That may be important. I may, ch I may need to change the way I'm relating to my work. Maybe I'm letting it um, be the source of my identity and that's burning me out because it's not giving me what I want it to give me because it can't. Uh, so that there may be things I need to change in my circumstances to help me better care for my soul. But mostly caring for my soul is not a, it's not a becoming irresponsible. It's becoming in some ways more wisely responsible. It's honoring, let's say, the reality that God gives us good work, but also God gives us good rest. And too many of us, especially the responsible among us, have been very good at, um, good work and not so good at good rest. Yeah. It's, well, it's, it's one of the few sins, right. That we allow. I mean, yep. I've talked about it how many times, but it just is. You talk about how hard you're working and everyone gives you a pass on it. Um, you know, even, even if that, if that's the expense of your soul. Yeah. So I have a friend <clears throat> who's in, who is in workaholics anonymous. Hmm. You know how many people are in workaholics anonymous? Not very many. Yeah. Yeah. Because it is it is a rewarded addiction uh, and it's an affirmed addiction. You know, it's one of the ones where you almost want to wear it. Some people seem to want to wear it like a badge on their jacket. You know, here I am. I'm an I'm a not I'm an alcoholic. I'm a workaholic. And pff, yeah. Hooray for me. Yep. Uh, except exactly. it's an addiction like any other addiction. And it's subject to the same realities as any other addiction. 
one of the things you write, you say, God gives us the gift of working with him, but he also gives us the gift of making us ready and able to do that work well. God calls us not only to collaboration, but also to friendship in the work. What does it mean to be a friend of God? Well, it means about the same thing in many ways as having a human friend. It's someone with whom you share your life. It's someone with whom you discover some important things in common that uh, you find encouraging and helpful. It's learning how to care for another instead of just caring for yourself. Being a friend of God, of course, God happens to be the one who is the initiator in this friendship. He's the one making the first move, you know. It's always nice when somebody else is willing to take the first step toward you in friendship. And God is always the one doing that. You know, there's the language of union with God, the idea of being increasingly aligned with the heart and the mind of God. And being a friend of God is learning how to uh, align ourselves more and more with who God is and how God works. So, for example, the fruit of the Spirit, not so much a to-do list to check off, but a description of what it looks like when I become a closer friend of God. This, Because this is who God is. This is the kind of person I become over time in friendship with God. Mm, fascinating. So one of the thoughts I had written down here, because I've kind of thrown this around in my mind a little bit, so I'm curious to get your take. The whole idea of unhurried living, um, is that a privilege that we enjoy in our society today that just other societies in the past or, or currently don't enjoy? Mm. Um in other words, do we have, so so like, for example, I'll hear different people say, well, I just need to take a year to find myself, right? And and take sure. large quantities of time, right? Um, what do you do to the, you know, I think of the, the single mom, right? Three kids. And every moment feels like a rush. And you talk about unhurried living and it's like, yeah, not a chance, right? Yeah. So what do you say to situations like that? It's a, it's a really good question. Um, so one of the things I say is that um, unhurried living uh, requires a community. Uh, it's not just for those who are privileged uh, because of levels of wealth or situations in life or where on the planet they happen to live. I've had the privilege of talking about this theme with brothers and sisters in Africa and brothers and sisters in northeastern India. And they clearly were uh, in a different economic reality than I found myself in as an Orange County, California Christian. Mm. So there are realities to what I am, what I have a capacity for because of the privilege that I have. I do have privilege. But when you start talking about some of the unhurried realities in Scripture, for example, Sabbath. Sabbath was actually meant to be an equalizer between the poorest of the poor and the richest of the rich. It was meant to be a day, an unhurried day, a day of worship, a day of resting, a day of refreshment, where we all in community found a way to stand with one another and just be equal on the ground of resting. You know, we weren't the, you know, the wealthy person in charge of lots and lots, and, and we weren't the very poor person with nearly nothing. We were just human beings resting in community. That's the ideal. Now, it hasn't happened in reality all that often. But I think 
the opportunity when I've spoken with these leaders and these Christians in other contexts is I just want to ask them, what would rest look like for you? Because I think somehow God would like to give you the gift of rest. It may look different than it looks like for me. But I will ask them, and I will ask the key leaders in those contexts a question like that. And sometimes they don't know. You know, my friends in Africa, many times they are uh, ministers, and therefore they are bivocational ministers, which is to say they have a job that pays the bills, and they are the pastor of a church. Uh, I'll share one quick story. I was speaking to a group of pastors in uh, Uganda uh, from the Church of Uganda, and we had been able to invite a few pastors over from South Sudan. Uh, you know, that country has been at war, civil war, as long as I've been alive, 60-some years. And we brought them over, and they are living. It's one of the poorest countries, too. Um, and one of the priests in that Anglican expression of the church, Church of Uganda, we were. I was talking about Sabbath. And I could just see the glazed eyes of most of the priests in the room, Anglican priests. And I was thinking, oh, no, I am not, I'm not making sense to my friends. Uh, this isn't getting through. And then in the back, this gentleman was probably six foot eight, as many South Sudanese with the height. He stands up and says, may I share my story? <laughs> I said, oh, please, please, please share your story. Mine's not helping any. And he said, sitting right next to him was his archbishop. And he said, about a year ago, my, my archbishop came to me and said, John, you're angry. You're angry because you're tired. This is what you must do. He said, you must not go to work on Monday. You must stay home. You must read a book that you want to read. You must enjoy your family. You must rest and then you can go and care for the needs of the church on Tuesday. And, you know, well, when your archbishop says something like that, you take it to heart because he's your boss. And then he said, that was 52 Mondays ago. And, he and you could just see him beaming. He had discovered what it looked like for him to rest. See, again, I know everyone has different life situations, but the single mom, for example, couldn't we be a community? to come alongside her and say, could we care for those little ones on, on a weekend day, perhaps that you have off and you could go enjoy yourself somewhere. If we were a community that valued rest, we might make space for things like that. Well, and I definitely don't want to speak to the single mom situation because that's not where we're at as a family. But I think of even my wife and I, where we've talked about different things. Sometimes, oh, yeah. you know, she'll say, cause we have three young kids. Right. And, and I know, cause I work most of the day and then, so she's at home with the kids. Yeah. Um, I get home and she needs a break. Right. And we've talked about that because then, but then uh, we, one of the things, you know, she said, well, man, I feel sometimes guilty going out and leaving you here with the kids. I'm like, no, we are totally fine. Like we're, we're more than fine. Right. To do that. Right. And, and, and it's almost like, you know, in, in her case, it was like almost giving up a little bit and saying, okay, no, they're going to be fine without me. The house won't fall apart. It'll, look a little bit different, but <laughs> it's not going to fall apart without me being here. And it, it, it's, it does, it sometimes takes taking a step out in, in a small way, a step of faith and saying, I'm going to trust that, you know, God will, that this unhurried time with God will pay dividends. Um, so 
Well, I think you're exactly right. I, and, and what I want to say is when we began practicing disciplines like solitude and silence and prayer, we were young, married, no kids. Mm. And then son number one came along and then a few years, number two, and then a few years, number three. But we had established those rhythms as a couple before the kids came. So we began to find creative ways for my wife to get away and I would have the guys and she'd get a number of hours or a day if she wanted it. And we did that for each other. And that has continued. Now we're with adult kids, you know, who don't need mom and dad like they did when they were little. But you can decide to experiment with what it looks like to practice whatever spiritual, spiritual discipline, uh, discipline you'd like. It may not look the way it did in the last chapter of life, but you can try it on. I know we got to wrap up here, but one of the things that I did, um, I just threw it out on our Facebook here, the Monday Christian Facebook page, and I'd like to get a little bit of response here from people. Hmm. So I, one of the things I put down, I said, what's your secret to unhurried, an unhurried life? And honestly, I wasn't, I thought that sounded a bit ambiguous, So, but I got several responses right away. Huh. And one of them was uh, kids. <laughs> <laughs> when you have kids, then uh, then it's it's tough to have a, too much of a hurried life, I guess. Oh, that's uh, but, funny. But Cindy, she she writes a uh, prioritization, organizing, decluttering, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. uh, Crystal, she writes in not having extracurricular interest. Darren writes about have a job that doesn't monopolize your life. Mm. Uh, Regina, be being decisive about what things we will allow our time to go to. Um, Pam writes in, she says, disability has forced me to slow way down. Hmm. And, uh, and then Anthony writes in, uh, what's that? <laughs> <laughs> I can empathize. <laughs> yeah. So, so uh, I think, you know, small steps, that's a big thing. And I'll just yes. encourage listeners, uh, viewers, uh, pick up a year of slowing down. Great resource. And it's 365 daily devotional. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a short one too. It's just like a page. And you're done. Simple application at the bottom. Um, I did it this morning. Very, very beneficial. So, Alan, best places people can find you, uh, access your work online? Yeah. Well, you can find about uh, just about everything I do uh, at, on our website at unhurriedliving.com. Uh, we have uh, a number of resources there, including I'll mention a little resource we call Unhurried Daily, which is a little 40-day series that you can sign up for and it's even more brief than the devotional. It'll take you a minute at the most to read it. But again, it's just becoming unhurried is a process. It's not an event, and it just takes time. That's why this most recent book is written the way it is, and that's a lot of resources we offer help with that. Thank you so much. Appreciate your time. It was great to be with you, Ezra. Thank you. Well, thanks again to Alan for coming on, and I just encourage you to visit unhurriedliving.com. You can go there, of course, get his resources, but he also has coaching programs that he does and and just uh, different content that he produces. So, man, this is a big one. This is a big one because in the work that I do as a freelance writer and talking with business CEOs and so forth, uh, there's been a massive shift in the last few years as people have taken inventory of their lives, um, whether they were in quarantine and COVID, right? And just taking time to really think, okay, I need to take inventory of my soul and do things that are actually life-giving and rewarding and not just running and living at a frantic, busy, you know, speed of life. 
but that I actually need to slow down and do those things in life that are most important. And so Alan's book is, is a great place uh, to start with this. Anyways, talk to you all again next week. Have a great week and I'll talk to you all soon. Thank you for listening to the Monday Christian Podcast. To support our vision and find new ways to put your faith into action throughout the week, visit themondaychristian.com. That's themondaychristian.com. Thank you.